1: Greetings, Buff fans from See You at the Game. This is Stuart Whitehair, publisher of the See You at the Game website, and now your host for the See You at the Game podcast. I will be joined momentarily by my best man and best friend, Brad Geiger, and we will take a look at the questions you have posed in this month's mailbag. We will look to answer questions. Is it in CU's best interest to have scheduled twice as many Power 5 non-conference opponents than it has most of its Pac-12 brethren? Is it time to push the panic button on CU recruiting in light of the fact that CU's recruiting class of 2021 is currently ranked 94th in the nation with four lightly recruited commitments to date? What will be the size of the crowds at Folsom Field this fall and will fans want to attend? And going back over 30 years into the CU at the Game archives, we ponder the question as to how the 1989 and 1990 seasons would have played out had Salanessi not been stricken with cancer, Anessi was a starting quarterback in 1988, leading the Buffs to their first eight-win season in over a decade. Would Anessi have kept his job over Darian Hagen? Would Anessi have been able to lead the Buffs to their first two 11-win seasons in school history as Hagen did? There's no right answer to that question, but Brad and I will debate both sides. I hope that you will enjoy this month's mailbag and plan on participating in the next mailbag. Which you can do by sending your questions to see you at the game at gmail dot com. And now on to your questions. Okay, it's time to open up the See You at the Game mailbag. Joining me once again from Highlands Ranch is Brad Geiger. How you doing, Brad?
0: Doing pretty well. I uh one advantage of the quarantine is that they have opened up the golf courses, and I've played more already this year than I have in uh, the last couple. So uh, as weird as it is, my golf swing remains strange as well.
1: And your score?
0: Um, very high. Ah. Very high.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, the Buffs for Life Golf Tournament has been moved to October, so you have an entire summer to practice. So let that be a lesson. You are going to be prepared and be our – you're going to carry the team this fall.
0: Well, our team needed some carrying, so we will see what we can accomplish. (laughs) Fair enough. So, leading into, I think, a discussion about where we're at on college football now, which is complex, Mike in Longmont asks, what do you believe will be the size of the crowd for the CU home opener against Fresno State? If there is limited seating and you have the option to go, would you?
1: Thanks, Mike. There's several layers to that. First, what will be the size of the crowd and I think obviously that would play into the decision as to whether or not I can or will go if it's 25 percent capacity and priority is given to the students and you're talking about a 50,000 seat stadium and 12,000 students well then the decisions pretty much been made for us it would be just the students uh, attending the game and the rest of us watching it on TV The Texas governor has said that they're going to go at least with 50% capacity. The Texas A&M athletic director has already said he's anticipating having a full house for Colorado in September. So I guess the first question is, what capacity, if any, do we foresee? What would you say, Brad? Do you think we'll be at 25%, 50% or 100% or none?
0: I think that's going to vary from state to state, my suspicion is that CU and Colorado is going to look, you know, more like California than Alabama or Texas. So my guess is that we're going to be looking more along the lines of 25%, at least at the beginning while we try to figure this thing out. So I think probably we're going to be looking more at students because I think the idea is that we've assembled a campus that is supposed to be more secure and more safe. I think they'll be limiting the number of people coming onto campus on a regular basis. So I fear that those from off campus will be limited.
1: Well, that would answer the second part of the question then. If the opportunity to go is not there, then we're not going to go. So let's hypothetically say that CU is allowing for 50%. Would you want to go? Under those circumstances.
0: No, but I think that's a very individual choice. Um, I can't imagine watching a game with a mask on and even given, you know, say 50%. That's an awful lot of people. My concern is not so much sitting in the stands. It's how do you get in? Part of a football game is a crowd. I think that the challenge will be getting the crowds in and out, the lines, everything else. I don't know that we will have that worked out by Fresno State.
1: Well, at least there are other sports that are going to be involved and engaged before then. So perhaps there will be some other mechanisms designed to make that more of a a realistic possibility. Um, Coming from Montana, again, assuming we have 50% capacity and I'm one of those that is allowed to buy tickets and maybe there's going to be a priority system there. That's another issue altogether as to who gets to go um, if it is not gonna be a you know 100% capacity. And I would assume there'd be some layers, some priority system, and you know we've had season tickets in the same place for several decades and moved around the stadium for 10 years before that. So I imagine our priority points would be enough to get us tickets. It'd be a question of now flying from Montana down for a game Hanging out with Brad before the game. Is there a tailgate? Is it going to be a night game? Yeah, there's going to be a lot of variables there. So the question is for Mike, if you have the option to go, would you? I would probably be on your side of the ledger right now. I would say no. There are too many variables for me to be able to say yes, I want to go. Well, I definitely want to go, but whether or not that would be the right option Based upon the circumstances that we are seeing here in June of 2020, I think that would be a hard sell. I have some new friends, friends that we made last year that came up for the Nebraska game. He was from Nebraska, but grew up a Colorado fan, which is just a wonderful thing. But had never been to Folsom Field and came up for the Nebraska game. And we got him tickets because he was worried about getting tickets. So... We got him tickets for the game, and he's already bought plane tickets for the Oregon game. And that's may or may not be a reality, but if it was my circumstance and I was able to get tickets, as we sit here in June, I would probably get tickets for the Oregon game and give them to my friend in Florida and stay home and watch the game on television.
0: Yeah, I think we're all going to have to make decisions, not just about what's best for us, but again, what's best in terms of the students. CU as an academic institution now is talking about sending the students home at Thanksgiving so that we don't have people coming in and out of the campus to try to reduce the chances of a transmission. I don't see 50,000 people coming to a football game comporting with that kind of thought process.
1: Okay, well, stay tuned. We'll, we'll know more as the calendar turns. So another question, i got a question for Brad. Uh, this is from Roger. I uh, was sending questions in earlier mailbags, so thank you, Roger, for another question. I understand the, quote, have to play the best to be the best, end quote, argument, but isn't CU hurting its chances to get to a bowl by playing so many Power 5 opponents in non-conference play?
0: Well, of course, the short answer is yes. You know, if you play fewer top five Power 5 then you have a better chance of winning, and so you have a better chance of getting a bowl eligible record. Part of it comes down to what are you aspiring to. If you're aspiring to be, you know, a team that every once in a while squeaks into a bowl with a six and five, seven and four record, then your scheduling thought process is different than a team that is looking to, you know, hopefully achieve more than that. CU has, for a number of years, tried not to be the first. Now, obviously, that hadn't worked out so great. And yeah, you know, steel sharpens steel. The idea is that you want to play better teams, and it becomes a, a balancing process. You want to play a Power 5 team, a school, but a Power 5 school that you can beat. Probably would rather score, schedule Vanderbilt than Alabama. So, But it's also a matter of availability and how you go from there. I don't think CU can develop a reputation as if not a national contender, a national program by playing Appalachian State every year or even Montana State um, with bad connotations there.
1: Yeah, so, thanks for the reminder. Appreciate that. <laughs> so, 2006, yes. Remember it well.
0: Yes, uh, you know. And so, you know, how you pick Power Five, how you pick – other top schools, that kind of thing. It is is much more art than science. It is much more what's available, is much more who you can pay to come here. CU is not presumed to be a great destination. So at some point you get what you get and you don't throw a fit to use what my family has always used with the kids. So yeah, I wish there are times that our schedule was somewhat easier, especially considering the turmoil in the program the last few years. But I think they have tried to do a pretty good job balancing
1: that. Well, my only objection, and I understand the need and the desire to have national profile games. It's good to get on national television. Obviously, the Nebraska game last year, last two years, has generated a great deal of interest, not only for the local fans, but nationwide. But I did an article on this earlier in the offseason, I'll post it on the companion piece uh, on the at the Game website. Looking at the next decade in non-conference games for the Pac-12, CU is going away from the philosophy of playing one power five, one good group of five, and one you know cupcake type of game, one easy win, one CSU kind of game, or New Mexico kind of game, or Air Force kind of game, and then one power five game. Colorado is playing two power five conference schools almost every year of the next decade. We've got Texas A&M this year. Uh Next year, it's Texas A&M and Minnesota. The following year, it overlaps Minnesota and TCU. The year after that overlaps TCU and Nebraska. Then in 2024, we play only Nebraska. Then we pick it up again. Georgia Tech and Missouri in 2025. In 2026, it's going to be Georgia Tech and Northwestern. 2027, you got Northwestern and Kansas State. 2028, you got Kansas State and Florida, and it just goes on and on. There's 18 games in the next decade out of what we'll be talking about 30 possible games for non-conference that see who's playing a Power Five conference school. The next highest total in the Pac-12 is Stanford with 12 and that's including all the Notre Dame games that they've got scheduled to date. Oregon has 11, Arizona state has 10. Nobody else, well, USC now has 10. They just picked up Ole Miss in 2025 and 2026. The rest of the conference is less than half of what CU has. So I have no real problem with CU reaching for the stars and wanting to have high profile games and, you play the best, you beat the best, um, you be the best, you gotta play the best uh, if it's on a level playing field. But if CU is starting one and two, whereas Arizona, Arizona State, UCLA, Utah are starting three and O every September, it's gonna be hard perception wise, it's gonna be hard recruiting wise, it's gonna be hard you know, just win loss wise to compete and after the last 15 years, the worst stretch in the history of the program, is it really necessary to fill the coffers just to scratch to try and win six games? Um, well, it's tough.
0: Well, wins matter. And that matters for recruiting. And be a recruit looking and saying, hey, well, you get to play the best. You know, you hope you get the guys who are competitive. But, you know, it also you want to be in a bowl game. And uh, I don't think there's any easy ways, but you know, again, these things are set a decade out. It's hard at this point to start talking about buying out of games, but perhaps that's where we're going to have to look. And I think that in part is up to the coach and what he and the athletic director have to say about where they think this program is going.
1: Well, fingers crossed that they are going to be like the national championship in 1990 played the toughest schedule in the nation. We played the Toughest schedule in the nation, 1993. The 94 team, after beating Michigan in the Miracle at Michigan, had to go to Austin and play at Texas. The good, the great CU teams of the 1990s played some of the most difficult schedules in the country. Very high-profile games. And certainly that enhanced the profile of the school and helped with recruiting. But until you can prove you can actually win some of those games... Yeah, I'm not advocating playing Northern Colorado every year, but you do need to be cognizant of the fact that you've gone to one bowl game in the last 13 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is unfortunately the state of the program at the University of Colorado and we have to not admit it, at least acknowledge it.
0: Yeah, and that's uh that's a sad truth and you know, we have to some extent, I don't want to say coasted, but relied on Sometimes it are some years ago, and maybe it's time we acknowledge something different. So anyway, Stuart, moving on because, of course, the recruiting agony goes on. And <laughs> Jeremiah H. says, CU just picked up a two-star offensive lineman with one other Power 5 offer from Kansas. There are only four recruits in the current class, and none of them are highly recruited. Time to push the panic button on CU recruiting under Carl Dorrell."
1: Well, Jerbaia, I don't know if it's time to push the panic button, but I'm going to at least know where it is. Um, I'm going to have it handy. Yes, we already knew this was going to be a small recruiting class. Yes, we are at a huge disadvantage for the fact that Carl Durrell got hired in February and was not able to have a spring practice, not able to have in-house visits, not able to go out and recruit. But that being said, The disadvantage is not all that much greater than what other schools are facing. You know, yes, we have a brand new coaching staff, but we had both the coordinators back. Darren Chevroening, the recruiting coordinator, is back. You know, Darian Hagen is back. So there was a structure in place in terms of looking for recruits. And recruiting is such a science now that you're looking at sophomores, looking at tapes of juniors. You're not just recruiting this class. You're always recruiting the next class. So there are already players identified by the people that are still in Boulder, that were in Boulder the whole time. And yet the four recruits that we have right now, the four commits we have right now, there's two of them have one Power Five offer, and that's from the University of Colorado. The other two have three, including the University of Colorado. That's not a very good ratio. If you've paid attention to see what the game, you know that, You know, stars are not the highest caliber of reference in my book. I tend to look at Power 5 offers, and I did an article, and again, I'll post a link to that going back all the way to the class of 2013 and looking at, just for example, Mike McIntyre's classes, 40% of his recruits only had CU as their only Power 5 offer. Wow. Under Mel Tucker, in two classes, it was 22% only had CU as its only Power 5 offer. So it was drastically reduced. Class of 2020 had a grand total of 215 Power 5 offers. That was greater than Mike McIntyre's first four classes combined. So my fear is that we're back to the Dan Hawkins, Mike McIntyre, recruiting against group of five schools and trying to turn three stars into better players. And there's nothing wrong with that. You build a program having overachieving three stars, but you have to have those star players coming in and Mel Tucker gave us a taste of the possible. And it's been a very dramatic drop off at least to the first several months under the new regime And hopefully that will turn around this summer. Hopefully that will turn around this fall. We've talked about the class of 2021 being a small class anyway. But the four recruits that we have as of this taping are not high-level recruits. If you're going to have a small class, wouldn't you want it to be a very high-quality class of the players that you are bringing in? So I'm excited for the CU staff to prove me wrong. I'm not pushing the panic button, but like you say, I am taking it out of the drawer and putting it close by. Well, I mean,
0: of course, it's a cliche to say that recruiting is a lifeblood. Yes, we hope that this staff can make do with a little bit less talent, and then making do with three stars is what recruits and winning is what recruits you four stars, etc. And you know, this is a weird year, and it's very difficult to know how that's going to work all the way across. But it doesn't feel like we're winning any fights right now. It doesn't feel like we're getting into you know, what is the equivalent of the living room. I don't know how they're doing it right now. And making the sale. And I think we talked on an earlier mailbag about the concern is that when in times of uncertainty, people look for the old and well-known thing. And Carl Durrell is not at it, is not it. And so I do have concerns that as long as we don't know exactly how this program is going to look, recruits are going to say, I want something proven. And how long that will last, how that will look, it may change if the team is better than we think. Hopefully it will change if the team is better than we think. But I am not freaking out, but I understand those who are, and it feels like we need a win or two in a living room uh, so that we can understand that there's something in the closing there. I think, you know, Carl has done a lot of things well. Um, He got a lot of appropriate applause for how he has handled some of the recent issues around racial tension. I don't think he did that for PR. I don't think he did that for recruiting, but I don't think it hurt. So you hope the name gets out there. You hope the word gets out there. But I would like to have somebody better come in. I'd like to beat a better school for a kid. And that, I think, will settle us down. But until that happens, yeah, concern is completely appropriate.
1: Well, another one where we can say stay tuned and fingers crossed as we go from the spring to the summer and start looking towards actual practices and actual football to talk about. But since we are still in June, I'm going to finish it off with a great question going back over 30 years now. This is from 83 Buff. Thanks, Mark, for the question. This is a good one. Something I've wondered, and there isn't an answer, but what if Sal hadn't gotten sick? Was he good enough to hold off Hagen as the starter? Would that 1989-1990 stretch have been as successful with Sal? I didn't see enough of Sal to know and I've never heard of any players on the team asked or answered that question. What is your opinion? Brad, you want to take a side and I will I will I I, I, this is a great question and I can argue either side and I'll I'll let you pick one side and then I'll offer a counter argument.
0: Well I will take this side and I, I am comfortable with it. Sal's memory is and should be revered. Sal was an amazing competitor. Darian Hagan was a better quarterback. Darian's thousand-thousand season in 89 is demonstrably better than what Sal had put together. Darian was quicker. Darian was slightly better at decision-making in the option. He was a better passer overall. Now, whether McCartney would have Changed horses in midstream, I don't know. But to say that Sal could have done as well as Darian, I think, is looking at things from some very rose-colored glasses. Darian Hagen was a unusual talent, and we should never forget that. And we can appreciate Sal Inessi, and we can appreciate his courage. We can appreciate that he was willing to take over a team that was literally very bad. And make it good, but no, I don't think Salanese was as good a quarterback as Darian Hagan, and I don't think that we would have been assured the results that we got from Darian Hagan with Salanese. I hope that doesn't come across as heresy, but I am. I think the stats bear me out.
1: No, well, and it's hard to argue, and we're talking about an eleven and one team in 1989, an eleven one and one team in 1990, so. For Sal Nessie to have done as well as Darian Hagen, you're talking near perfection. Uh, I think you put Darian Hagen on Mount Rushmore for most CU fans, so that's a pretty high level of play to try and say that Sal would have played that well. He was the quarterback for the 1988 team, and the stats are not eye popping, like you say, as as it was for Darren Hagen in nineteen eighty nine. But it was an eight and three team. And while that's nothing compared to the eleven win teams of nineteen eighty nine and nineteen ninety, it was the most wins CU it' had in a decade. And it was a younger team that grew into the nineteen eighty nine and nineteen ninety teams. The teams of the players that were recruited after the eighty six season and eighty seven season that, grew into the All-Americans in 1989 and 1990 would have grown into those All-American statuses probably with or without Sal. I would make the argument that Sal, and we can see from what happened in the early part of 1989 season, was certainly the leader of the team. And even when he was sick and watching the games, the non-conference games from the press box, he was the leader of the team. When he died, he became the focal point of the team. He was the not only the spiritual leader of the team, he was the leader of the team. And leaders tend to create winners. And imagine a backfield with Sal Inessi, a quarterback, and then Darian Hagan being a running back or a slot back. Uh, remember that Darian Hagan played as a punt returner, as kick returner in his senior year in 1991, just so Bill McCartney could help him showcase his talents to get him into the NFL. He was that good. You know, he was going to be on the field even if Sal was the quarterback. Now, can you make the argument that CU would have been better than 11 and one in 1989, better than 11, one, and one in 1990? I think it's hard to say Peyton Manning or, you know, fill in the blank, great quarterback, would have done much better than Darien Hagen. But I think that Sal would have equaled or been up to what Darien Hagen was able to produce by being the quarterback and having Darien Hagen as part of his backfield. So I understand the argument that Darien Hagen is one of the best players ever to play for the University of Colorado. And to say that Sal would be better is not sacrilege, not heresy, but a very tough argument to make, but I don't think there would have been a a drop-off with Sal continuing on as the quarterback for the 1989 and 1990 teams. I think that C would have been competing for national championship. Maybe we don't beat Nebraska 27-21. Maybe we don't score four touchdowns in the rain in Lincoln in 1990 if Sal a quarterback. But, you know, maybe we don't lose to Illinois. Uh, you know, that type of thing. So I think it's a great question because as, you know, Mark pointed out in the question, there's no answer to that. There's no wrong answer to that, but it is an interesting question, interesting hypothetical, and it's something for us Buff fans to talk about in the off season. And hopefully we will now be turning as players are returning to campus for voluntary workouts and, a schedule being set now for when practices can begin, when fall camp can begin, at least mechanism, at least the structures in place for us to start talking about football again. And hopefully, our July mailbag will be about who is going to be the quarterback and whether or not playing CSU in front of a crowd of X is going to make a difference in the game. And we actually have football to talk about. But for now, We can only talk in hypotheticals. We can only talk about possibilities. And I thank Brad for being a part of the June 2020 mailbag. And Brad, I'm sure we will talk again soon.
0: Well, neither one of us have gone anywhere for a number of decades now. So I suspect in another month, we will still be here talking CU football. Go Buffs.
1: Thank you for listening to this month's See with at the Game Mailbag. As the start of fall camp gets closer, we'll be shifting our attention in the podcast to a review of the Sioux roster and to possible position battles which normally would have played out in April but will now be fought over in August. We will also continue with our road trip series and put out another mailbag podcast before practices commence. Along with your questions, your comments are much appreciated. If you'd like to suggest a topic or have a question about the podcast or about the See You at the Game website, please feel free to drop me a note anytime at seeyouatthegame at at gmail.com. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast. We are available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, pretty much wherever you download your podcasts. The Buffs are back in Boulder, engaged in voluntary workouts, with the resumption of more formal training coming in mid-July. We still don't know how the 2020 college football season is going to play out, but see what the game will be there to cover it. And I hope you will come along for the ride. We'll talk again soon. Go Buffs.
0: Thank you for listening to our See You at the Game podcast. For links to articles and stories referenced in this podcast, go to seeyouatthegame.com. That's the letter C, the letter U, at thegame.com. If you have comments or suggestions, you can leave them on the website or send an email to seeyouatthegame at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and share it with your fellow Buff fans. Until next time, when we will again see you at the game.